Al Jazeera Podcasts. I know it's small stuff, but when you don't have money to buy food, you're starting to be nervous. That's Maya Zemir. She's been a children's entertainer for 25 years, and she's based in Tel Aviv. Before October 7th, she says her business calendar was fully booked. That's no longer the case. We came from 100% work to 0%. Maya's not alone. Israel's war on Gaza is firing back on its own economy. Many analysts expect the economic impact will be unlike anything that Israel has experienced in decades. A recent poll shows that 45% of Israelis fear economic hardship due to the conflict. Tourism is down. Businesses are empty. And some companies that remain open have had to contend with labor shortages as their employees were sent to fight in Gaza. The war is prompting the largest call-up of military reserves in Israel's history. 300,000 people called into duty. So how long can Israel's economy hold up as its war continues in Gaza? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Nimrod Flaschenberg. I'm an Israeli activist based in Berlin. Uh, I used to work as a parliamentary advisor for the Hadash uh, fraction in the Israeli Knesset. Uh, now I study history and sometimes I write about what is happening in Israel-Palestine. So, Nimrod, it's been more than 100 days since the Hamas attacks of October 7th and Israel's war in Gaza. And every statistic related to it is staggering. More than 25,000 people killed in Gaza. The death toll in Israel stands at more than 1,000. We know that nothing can compare to the human toll. But aside from the daily horrors of enduring war, waging war is expensive. And the financial cost has risen to almost $60 billion for Israel. Government spending is soaring to pay for it. Businesses are struggling. What does that actually look like on the ground in Israel right now? Yeah, so um, the situation is harsh. I think that what is happening, first, there is uh, just the basic fact of 350,000 reservists that were recruited after the 7th of October. Many of them since returned uh, home, but many are still in the front. And that accounts to about 7% of the Israeli workforce. At the same time, the state needs to pay not only for the war expenses, but also for these reservists for the days they miss in work. Mm. So that alone is just a huge cost at the heart of the, the economic problems Israel is facing. Mm-hmm. But there are other aspects that are just as significant. So we know that this isn't Israel's first war in Gaza. I wonder what is different this time around, because military spending has been known to be among the highest in the world for Israel. And we are seeing headline after headline of a slowing economy, with it costing about $269 million a day to run this war for Israel. 
The war in Gaza has shaken up the Israeli government's finances, requiring revised budgets and billions more dollars. Financial modeling figures are forecasting a devastating loss to the Israel economy. U.S. ratings agency Moody's has put Israel's A1 credit rating on review for downgrade, citing the ongoing war with Hamas. What's changed? What is different this time? Uh, the, the scale is just completely different. There are several aspects. First, there is the fact that about 120,000 Israelis are displaced from the regions around Gaza and also from the north. They need to be taken care of. The government is not doing a very good job at it, but still, it costs a lot. Beyond that, I think that just the scale of the massive attack and bombardment that uh, Gaza is facing and the, the scale of the invasion is just uh, uncomparable to anything we've seen before in Gaza. These are complete regiments or even corps that are entering the Gaza Strip, and these are numbers that only in, uh, in the wars of the 70s and 80s did we see uh, such uh, mobilizations of the Israeli army and reserves. Wow. So I think the scale is just completely different, and the human toll... In, on the Gazan side, obviously reflects that. Huh. Right now, the Israeli uh, government, the Israeli prime minister, the Israeli minister of defense, are going on TV and saying, this war will continue and continue and continue. And they're talking about months or even years. Some have talked about a decade. With this uh, sort of mobilization, I don't see how the Israeli economy could be anything beyond a war economy. Huh. I know that you are studying and living in Germany right now, but for your friends and family who are in Israel, do they tell you that they can actually feel this? I think that what people are still feeling is the fact that we are at war. The social support for this war is very large. It is starting to crack around the edges, especially because it is clear that the government is not doing enough to release the hostages or to bring about a, a peaceful resolution and that Netanyahu's political interest is to prolong the war. But so the, the economic problems, they're not at the center of the conversation, mm -hmm. nor is what is happening in Gaza for the Gazans, but just this notion of uh, winning, mm. which is uh, very unclear uh, to anybody who looks at it in, uh, in sobered eyes. <laughs> Tell me more about that, because I wonder if it's a cognitive dissonance, like victory, but at what cost? What costs in human toll and, and what costs financially? Are those questions that are pondered in Israeli society right now? The right wing uh, government and especially the, the extremists, Bengvir and Smotrich, also Netanyahu, I think their plan is to actually pawn the future of Israeli uh, society and economy to this um, grand plan of uh, reconquering Gaza. And I think most of the Israeli public does not want to reconquer Gaza. They want to win because that's what they were promised. They want Hamas out of government in Gaza because that's what they were promised. They want the hostages to be released. But I don't think they want to live in a permanent war. And this is what the current leadership is offering. And... Because of the political conjuncture in which Netanyahu is, if the war continues, he will remain in power. I don't see exactly how we're going to bring this war to an end. I want to delve a little deeper about other workers' absences. 
that were also felt in Israel. Some 160,000 Palestinian workers used to cross over into Israel from the West Bank every day. And the, the vast majority of them were construction workers. They've been banned from entering. We also know that thousands of workers used to cross from Gaza before they were deported following the events of October 7th. How does that impact Israel's economy? Israel is preventing Palestinian workers from entering, and they are the backbone of the Israeli construction industry. Mm -hmm. The statistics that I've seen show that the construction sector is losing 2.4 billion shekels every month because of the lack of Palestinian laborers. That's 648 million U.S. dollars. And those workers can make a lot more in Tel Aviv than they can in the occupied West Bank. Palestinian construction worker Sadeh Najir told Al Jazeera in December that he made nearly double working within Israel. When it opens again, I will wait a couple of weeks to check the situation before I return. The work is better there. You get paid directly and on time, even though there's racism and I'm afraid of violence against me. The people who are actually uh, rooting for or, or supporting the readmission of these workers into Israel are the security chiefs, because they know that if the Palestinians who regularly work inside Israel will not be allowed in, the rates of poverty and the uh, uh, problems, the social problems in the West Bank are going to become so tough that there is going to be an uprising in the West Bank. Mm. So, you know, it, it is an economic matter. And Israel relies and has always relied on cheap Palestinian labor mm -hmm. as a source of its booming economy. Jewish labor was never really uh, used uh, for the construction of uh, the Zionist project, but uh, many Palestinian laborers. But in this case, it's not only an economic matter, but a political matter that could uh, erupt and explode at any moment. After the break... How long can Israel's economy withstand the war on Gaza? Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. So, Anumrod, paint a picture for us of what happened last week when Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet approved this budget that we've been talking about. A 2024 budget that includes an additional $15 billion for the war because they approved it on January 15th, but only after some really tense deliberations and an all-night meeting that had at least one minister storming out of the room in anger at proposed funding cuts. So what was on the table to get cut and how did that play out in the end? Yes. So uh, the the funny thing is that this uh, this nightly discussion and uh, drama is only the first step out of many because this is the government approval, but then it goes to the Knesset. 
The Israeli Ministry of Finance is a very uh, dogmatic neoliberal Ministry of Finance. Their only objective is to keep the debt-to-GDP ratio at a manageable uh, level. So they want to propose cuts and austerity. And that's what they did. They proposed a huge cut to all government ministries to pay for the cost of the war and also to pay for future costs of security. You know, in the best case scenario in which there's a, some kind of political settlement or in the worst case scenario in which this war goes on for years, in any case, the Israeli uh, security spending is going to go up and the way they're going to pay for it, according to the finance ministry, is to cut social services. And this is only the beginning. So we're, we're going to face austerity that is based on a war economy. In the end, the budget still included money for the ongoing construction of Israeli settlements in Palestinian territories, which is illegal under international law, but they continue to expand. Is that ever going to be something that's on the table when it comes to finding things to cut? I think it could, but not in this government. That's the thing. As long as this government is in power, money is going to be taken from, you know, underprivileged communities within Israel and be given to the settlements, to ultra-right-wing fundamentalists and so on. This government has a clear agenda of investing in the messianic dreams of the Israeli extreme right. And as long as this government is going to stay in power, it doesn't matter what they say. They're going to keep on funding settlements. They're going to keep on funding the occupation because that's their project. Finally, Nimrod, Israel gets financial and military support from the West. We know this, particularly the U.S. President Biden speaking with Prime Minister Netanyahu again, telling him a carrier strike group is on the way, as well as weapons, ammunition and fighter jets. But there is That about- does not look like it's going to change anytime soon. So with the war in Gaza and the military backing of Israel not showing signs of stopping, we know Israel's economy will not be allowed to fail. But how long can it hold up in its current state? I think that there is a way of conducting a war while still having an operating economy. But I want to go back before the 7th of October. What we saw with this government the past year is the collapse of this uh, vision of Israel that could be this high-tech nation while maintaining a fundamentalist leadership and an ongoing and continuous occupation. And I think that this model is not going to hold up, whether the war continues or not. And Israel needs to make a choice. Is it going to invest in public infrastructure and divest from the occupation? Is it going to become a more equal society that strives for better life for all of its citizens and its neighbors? Or does it continue with this path of war, arms exports, and uh, cybersecurity. I think that this choice could be affected by the influence of the support of the West. And that's The Take. 
This episode was produced by Syriyat Khalili, Ashish Malhotra, and Nagin Oliayi, with Chloe Kaylee, Miranda Lynn, Khadid Sultan, David Enders, Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, Zaina Badr, Faranisa Kampana, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Joe Plord mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.